0: You to uh, two men today and um, both of these men lived 300 years ago and the reason I'm introducing you to them is we can see the results of their lifestyle um, after 300 years. We're going to look at their descendants over that 300 year period and we're going to try to compare and contrast these two men and try to figure out um, which man we would like to emulate. The first guy is Jonathan Edwards. He's been described as one of our most... By the way, I want a hairstyle like that. I'm thinking seriously of, of grabbing that. Thank you. That looks much like you, Jeff. Um, <laughs> no beard. No beard. Okay. <clears throat> um, he's been described as, as one of the, the most brilliant minds that America has ever produced. He is the only son in a family of 11 children. He entered Yale University at 12... Finished four years later at the head of his class. Pretty smart dude. He was a theologian and a pastor. His father was a pastor. He followed his father in the pastorate at the same church until he got a little bit too strict with the scriptures and telling people how they should live, and then they asked him to go somewhere else. And he has he has preached all over the United States, and he is credited with um, bringing about the first great awakening, which was the first great revival that happened on American soil. He had three sons and eight daughters. A study was done of his descendants, and here's just some of what they found about 1,400 descendants. Here's what they found. Practically no lawbreakers. That's the one I wanted the first of all of my descendants in three or four hundred years. Practically no lawbreakers. Um, More than 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 13 college presidents. Over 100 college professors, 60 physicians, 100 clergymen, missionaries, and theological professors, 80 elected to public office, including three mayors, three governors, several members of Congress, three senators, and one vice president, Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr actually married into the family. 60 authors, and I like this, with 135 books of merit. No telling how many books they have that shouldn't be mentioned, but 135 books that, that really matter. 75 army or navy officers. Would you say that's a pretty good legacy to leave behind? Sure, after 300 years, um, I would say that, that uh, he would be glad, thankful that his family had produced these types of folks. Now we're going to look at another man, now, and if you if you do a search for this guy, his name is Max Juke. The it, it is mispronounced as Max Jukes, and, and I did some research on this this week. Anyway, Max came from a very different background, and Max evidently didn't pay a lot of attention to the things of God, and I want you to uh, see what we found out about Max. 280 paupers, a pauper, there it is, a pauper is one who is extremely poor, one living on or eligible for public charity. Now, we're not putting these people down, we're just reporting to you what was discovered about his life. Of that 280, 142 actually did receive welfare state aid for uh, about an average of five years. 140 criminals, six murderers, 128 prostitutes, those are the ones that were paid. Over 200 harlots, those were the ones not paid. 60 thieves, 67 women contracted syphilis. And then one report I read said that these women infected over 400 other individuals with syphilis. Um, which legacy would you like to have? The first? Yeah, uh, duh, the first, okay. Well, why was there such a stark difference? Lots and lots of theories have been put out there. Um, about this Um, one writer I found said this Jonathan Edwards was very godly so that's the first quality he was very godly but he was also uncommonly hard-working intelligent and moral and then one man said about his wife I like this ladies you'll like this much of the capacity and talent intensity and character of the more than 1400 um, individuals in his family tree of the Edwards family is due to Mrs. Edwards ladies can you say I know that's right baby So, basically, here's what we're going to find out. Jonathan Edwards came from a family who loved and feared God. He was taught to love and fear God. He was taught to be hardworking. He was taught to be moral. He was also taught that it's a good idea to find a woman who is seeking after God just as much as you are, who comes from the same type of family, alright? So they're seeking after God. So basically, Jonathan Edwards was a good man who feared God. He married a good woman who feared God, and they did everything they could to pour into their children to pass on this godly heritage. And and if there's anything I've learned over my years in ministry, 19 years in in youth ministry and and 7 years now as the pastor of this church, it's that men today are wandering around in the United States, I won't speak for any other country, in the United States with no idea of what it means to be a man. And since since we have no clear picture of what it means to be a man, our children, especially our boys, are coming up after us with no clear picture of what it means to be a man. And so we're raising up a generation of boys who never grow up. And we're cursing the girls in our families because they've never seen a man after God's own heart. They've never seen a good man. So they don't know who to marry. How are they going to know what type of man to choose if they've never seen it modeled out in front of them? The simple answer, the short answer is they won't. Unless we do something about that. And so it's my desire that we begin to understand at New Life what a good man, what a God man looks like Teach it to our boys, teach it to our girls, so that they grow up and marry that type of person. And just from a purely selfish standpoint, you're going to have to have Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and birthdays with these people your children marry. Don't you want them to marry people that you want to hang out with? Come on. Sure, okay. Well, let's try to figure this out. Let's look at Scripture, and let's uh, figure out what God has to say about this. Proverbs seventeen six says this, Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. Now, I read a book years ago when we first had a son, and it was called Raising a Modern Day Knight. The author is Robert Lewis, and he says this about grandparents. See if you agree, grandparents. He says, grandparents are sentimental, fawning, ingratiating masses of elderly protoplasm who exists to spoil your children. Is that pretty good? Yeah. My parents spoil my kids. And I have to admit, you know, my kids are 14, Rachel's about to be 12, and and Hannah's 9. We've already slipped into that grandparent mode. I know we're not old, but sometimes we feel very old. And we have no problem spoiling your children. None whatsoever. Because we don't have to live with them. Now, I do believe in discipline, and if your kids come to my house, they they have to follow the rules, but but we'll spoil them and send them home. You know, that's that's kind of a fun thing to do, because you don't have to live with them. But I believe God invented grandparents to offset the colossal, stupid mistakes we make as parents. Anybody agree with that? Sure. Well, three of you. By the way, I also believe that God gives you children not so much so that you can raise them, but so that God can finish raising you through your children. You want to find out how selfish you are? Get married. If you want to serve God wholeheartedly, you, you stay single. But if you want to become like God, you get married. Because when you get married, God gives you a full-length mirror to show you what you're really like in your spouse. And then, as if that's not enough, He gives you these kids who are completely self-absorbed And they will out-selfish you any day of the week. And God will raise you up through them. Novelist Victor Hugo says, There are fathers who do not love their children. There is no grandfather who does not adore his grandson. So what the writer of Proverbs is saying here is that um, much the same thing. Only he uses an image of a crown to get his point across. And, and I'm, I realize that in America, unless you're Miss America, crowns don't mean a whole lot, right? But in that day, the, the, the readers would understand very clearly what it meant. When a grandparent came into the presence of a grandchild, he felt like a king. He felt like he'd been crowned. That's my grandson. Even if he never paid attention to his children, most granddads and grandmothers will love their grandchildren. And they feel like a king or a queen in their presence. That's what the writer of Proverbs is saying. And I want you to see a picture of my dad, back when dad was um, first going into the Navy. Chuck Washburn, good-looking man, wasn't he? That was, uh, let's see, that was back in 1940, I forget, 43. He was going into uh, World War II. He was uh, in the construction battalion, CBEs of the Navy. And he was going to Guadalcanal. And Guadalcanal was already supposed to be um, uh, under our control. But uh, when he got there, they found out that there were still pockets of the Japanese fighting fiercely against the Americans. My dad almost died on the way to um, Guadalcanal. He was on the ship and he decides to go up because it's hot in, in the barracks, you know, and, and so he goes up there and, and it's it's in 40-foot seas. I'm like, Dad, you're not very smart. And I understand then where I get it and I tell my son, you know, it's genetic, we're idiots. Dad gets up there and st- and falls asleep and he says this huge wave rolls the ship, comes over and hits him and washes him to the other side. Dad catches the metal cable just before he falls over the ship. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. I said, Dad, did anybody know you were on deck? No. Dip? He said, Yeah. Wasn't very smart. I said, Did you go back down below? Oh, yeah. As quick as I could get there. Gets to Guadalcanal and, and you know, they get set up and there's snipers and stuff and you couldn't, the uh, officers couldn't wear any of their, their uniform that, that showed they were officers because snipers would kill them. They would stand in line sometimes and, and you couldn't salute the officers because they would be shot and dad said they'd be standing in line to get ready to get their food and people just start falling over dead because of snipers. And they would have to go out and, and find them and I'm going, dude, you, you were in line and you saw people die? Yeah. One night, Dad said that they were in the tent, and there were four of them in a tent, and and they hear the air raid sirens go off, and, and Dad runs, and uh, he said that's the first time he'd ever met, I think it was a Gila monster, It's some kind of big lizard w- was in his pants. And, you know, I'm like, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, bombs are coming, why are you putting on your pants? You know, because because he's getting in a foxhole, and there might be another dude in there, and <laughs> I'm like, okay, you know, I don't care. But he's he's running along, putting his pants on, and has to... Scream and do a little dance while the planes are coming, while the bombs are falling. And I talked to my dad a couple of years ago and I said, hey, hey dad, I, I gotta know, when, when you die, are you going to heaven? We're sitting up, it's about midnight, I was at home. And, uh, I said, I don't want to offend you daddy, but I gotta know that you're gonna be there. And so we had this great long talk and, and dad said, you know, the first time that I asked God to, to save me, to be my savior, was in that foxhole. He said, "I was in the foxhole begging God not only to spare my life, but to save me." I'm like, "Cool? I would be too." And Dad said, "There's a lot of men met Jesus in a foxhole." Well, here's a picture just a couple of years ago of my dad with my kids. First, I got a picture of uh, Rachel. We're at Red River, New Mexico. Dad now has a scooter. We got him a, an electric scooter we need to soup it up because it's not fast enough for him. He, you know, And it's like a four-wheel type job. And he's 80-something years old bouncing across there. Here's uh, dad with Hannah that same trip. And then dad with Caleb. My dad loves, loves his three sons and his daughter. My dad will do anything for his family. In fact, a few years ago, um, I said, Dad, I'm going to build something outside my house. 85 years old, dad's like, tell me when, I'll be there. Um, Wes remembers, we went on, went on a mission trip about, uh, let's see, Rachel was was a baby. She was three months old, so it was 12 years ago. We went on a mission trip to Montana, and my dad at the time was uh, 76 years old. And we were roofing this church, and, and Wes is afraid of heights. <laughs> Wes loves it when I use his name. He was afraid of heights, and so he wouldn't get up on there and help us. And, and all the other men had left early, and so it's me and my dad up there, and I've got the little nail gun, and we're going, dad sitting on the peak of the roof, chunking she- uh, shingles to me. And he goes, hey, boy, to Wes. Hey, boy, why don't you get up here? And Wes goes, uh, no, sir, I'm afraid of heights. He says, I'm 76 years old, you big sissy. There <laughs> comes Wes up the ladder. Oh! You know, he's up there chunking shingles, but, but he got up there. My dad loves his children. But if you want to see my dad's eyes sparkle, you watch when one of his grandkids comes in. He's got 12. One of them comes in and says, Papa, I need you. Papa drops everything. Because he's been crowned again. Papa, will you help me? Oh yeah, baby. His eyes light up because he's been crowned again. There's not, a, there's not a sane grandparent that doesn't love their grandchildren. Can you put that verse back up there, Danielle? I want you to see the second part of the verse. Grandfathers are the crown of... Grandchildren are the crown of old men. And the glory of sons is their father's. This word translated glory means boasting. The writer is telling us that as grandchildren are to old men, so a father is to a son. And and really to all the children, but especially to a boy. He's a a source of wonderment, of delight. He's a reason for boasting. And a son desperately wants to feel like a champion in the presence of his dad. And this is something that God has placed inside of sons in particular. It's not learned. Boys naturally want to boast about their dads. Now, I, ladies, no offense, but I've never heard one of my friends when he was a boy growing up saying, my mama can cook better than your mama. That may have been true, but every boy wants to boast in his dad. My dad's stronger than your dad. My dad's faster than your dad. My dad, his dad can be four foot eight, 98 pounds soaking wet. And to that son, he's a giant of a man. He holds power that, that he doesn't even realize. Few things are more important to a boy or a man than a word, a touch, a smile of encouragement from Dad. Now, I know this myself. My dad, you know, he's in the, in the Navy, and Dad fought for our country, and um, Dad's an incredible guy. But growing up, our family just didn't say, I love you, Ever. <laughs> Now, I knew that, that they loved me. They, they they did stuff with me. I knew they loved me, but we just didn't say it. We weren't affectionate. And when I got to college, I don't know what, what kind of got into me. I, I Just one day, I was a senior in college, 21 years old, and I just decided I was going to start telling my parents, you know, life's too short not to tell my parents that I love them. And so I just started telling them this all the time. And so even my dad, I'd be talking to dad on the phone. I was at Baylor University, and I was in this, this condo, and and I still remember this day girl I was dating was sitting on the couch and, and I had to talk to Dad about something, a car or something. Dad knows everything about fixing everything. And so I'm talking to him and then we get finished and I said, hey, Dad, I love you. Now, I'd been doing this for a couple of years and, and Dad would go, yeah, me too. Or he'd say, love you too, son. This particular day, I'm, I'm about to say, okay, Dad, well, I, I need to go. And he says, well, I love you, son. And I just stopped. I can describe for you the kitchen, because the kitchen was here, the dining room was here, and there was a little bar in between. That's where the phone was sitting. And I just stopped, because Dad said it first. I hung up the phone, and I just kind of walk in stunned. and, And the girl I was dating, she said, what's wrong with you? And I said, Dad told me he loved me first. The glory of sons is their father's. Why does an unkind word from Dad pierce a young man's heart? Because the glory of sons is their father's. Why does a three-year-old boy run and jump into his daddy's arms at the end of the workday? Because the glory of sons is their father's. There's a story by Ernest Hemingway that illustrates this point. There's a Spanish father who decides he wants to reconcile with his son who has run away to Madrid, Spain. Father's very remorseful, and so he decides to take out an ad in the local newspaper, the L Liberal newspaper, which I thought was really ironic, ironic, uh, considering our newspapers today. That was a bad joke. Um, the El Liberal newspaper. here's the headline: Paco. Paco's a very common name in Spain. Paco meet me at Hotel, Montana noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. The dad shows up in that city. And he finds 800 young men named Paco hoping it's their daddy who wants to reconcile. Why is that? Because the glory of sons is their father's. Is it unrealistic to think something like that would happen? You see, Hemingway had a horrible home life. Horrible home life. His parents were very, very religious, very, very strict and had zero grace. They were not loving at all. Because of his sinful lifestyle, his mother refused to allow Ernest Hemingway to come into her presence. One year for his birthday, she mailed him a birthday cake and the gun that his father had used to commit suicide. Hemingway never got over his hatreds for his mother or for her God. Why did he write this story about the Spanish father? I don't know. But my guess is that he longed for the approval of his dad. It doesn't matter how famous you are, how old you are, what you do for a living, the glory of sons is their fathers. I first discovered this verse 10 years ago um, and I was sharing this in, in another church. And so I was reading back through some of the illustrations that I had used and and I came across this one paragraph 10 years ago. Caleb was four, Rachel was two. And, and then I had an office and I would come home and, and I would come home for lunch as often as possible. And I came home and and uh, Caleb said, "Hey, Dad, can we play soccer?" And so I said, I "Said, how long do we have till lunch, Janie?" And she said, "Oh, you got five minutes." Well, two, you know, a four-year-old and a two-year-old—they don't care. They don't know. They don't have any concept of time. So we go outside. I mean, we kick the ball three or four times. That's it. And Janie said, "Supper's ready or lunch is ready." So we come in. We sit down, and and we have taken turns with our children praying over the meal as long as they can remember. So we're holding hands, and, and Caleb said, "God, thank you for today." He said, thank you for playing soccer with my daddy. To me, it was just two or three kicks, nothing big. But to him, it was a huge deal. It's because the glory of sons is their father's. Now dads, we have got to spend time with our kids. But we've also got to teach the boys and the girls what it means to be a real man. So I want to spend the next few minutes sharing with you four things that I believe every real man possesses and that we've got to teach our boys and our girls. Number one is live pure. Check this out. This is a a day of lists. Men commit 90% of major crimes in America. 100% of rapes. 95% of burglaries. 91% of offenses against the family. 94% of drunk drivers. Did you know that that if you go out to uh, the prison back years ago, they did a deal where they would give, um, I think it was Hallmark, somebody did free cards for Mother's Day and for Father's Day. Almost every inmate took the free card for mother. Almost no inmate took the free card for dad. An inadequate father figure for whatever reason whether they were just distant emotionally or physically contributed to most of the people who are in most of the males who are in the prison system today these are not good numbers you cannot live any way you want to and it not affect your children and by the way pure doesn't mean sinless if you've been around this church any time at all you know that when we say pure we're not talking about you have to be sinless because we we fully acknowledge, all of us, me included, full people. Pure means, in the Old Testament, when it talked about Job, it said Job was blameless. Blameless did not mean sinless. There was only one sinless human to ever walk this planet. His name was Jesus Christ. Blameless or pure means that when you recognize a sin in your life, you confess that sin to God, and if you've wronged someone else, you confess that sin to someone else. Pure means I try to do everything I can to obey God and when I don't live up to that standard, I plead the shed blood of Jesus over my sins and I make things right with other people. Why do you think one of the steps in Celebrate Recovery is to go to someone and make things right when it's possible to do so and when it doesn't hurt the person you're... Because you do not fully get over your past until you admit it, confess it, and make it right to the best of your ability. Proverbs 29:18 gives us a clear indication of what happens when when boys and girls do not see a a man living pure in front of them where there is no vision this means vision or uh, seeing clearly this this picture of a man but it also means where there is no word from god all right so it could mean it also means not living a godly life a pure godly life in front of your children where there is no vision the people are unrestrained what that means is they act like they can do anything that pleases them. Kind of sounds like our country. Where there are no men of purity, boys and girls get out of control, and society suffers. But the other side of that is, First Timothy 4:12 says, "Be an example to the believers with your words, your actions, your love, your faith and your pure life. If children don't see, if your children do not see a pure life from you, to whom will they go? Any ideas? Children watch their dads and they learn from them. So real men, first of all, live pure lives. Second thing, real men lead with truth. Men were created by God to lead, not follow. The very first man was Adam. His wife was Eve. God said to Adam, You may eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. Later, God creates Eve. To whom did God give the command not to eat from the tree of of knowledge of good and evil? Adam. He didn't give the command to Eve, so Adam must have learned uh, Eve must have learned from Adam. When this when the serpent comes and tempts Eve to eat this fruit, there's a very interesting phrase in the Bible because it says, Eve saw that the fruit was good and and Satan had said, if you eat this fruit, you will become like God. It's the same temptation we all get to be in charge. When you eat this fruit, you will become like God. It says that Eve ate it, and then here's the, here's the indication that, that, that Adam gave up his leadership role. It says that Eve took a bite and turned to her husband who was with her. Adam stood there and watched her violate God's command, and he was a passive man instead of leading with truth. And the rest of, of civilization has paid the price because Adam refused to stand up. Now, fast forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is actually described in the scriptures as the second Adam. The second Adam, when he was led into the wilderness and tempted, Satan took him up to a high mountain, said, "Uh, if you'll only bow down to me, I will give you everything. You can be God. Now, the irony is that he was God. It just would have been cool to me if he said, point of order. I'm already God, but he didn't. So, he says, if you'll bow down to me, Jesus, I'll give you all these things. You can become like God. And at the very point that Adam gave up his leadership rights, Jesus Christ became active. And look what he says. Matthew 4.10 Get out of here, Satan. Jesus told him, for the Scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Get out of here is what a real man says to anyone who threatens his family. The courage to lead with truth always separates men from the boys. Real men live pure lives. Real men lead with truth. That means, by the way, that if you don't know what's in here, you're going to have a hard time. Truth is not some concept that you might stumble onto. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person, his name is Jesus, and you get to meet him in the pages of his book. You cannot lead with truth if you don't know who Jesus is. Number three, real men right wrong. Our kids got to be taught right from wrong. Real men don't sit by idly while their kids go to hell in a handbasket. And would you agree with me that too many men in our nation have fallen down on the job? 1940, top seven reported problems in schools. 1940, talking out of turn, chewing gum, making noise, running the halls, cutting in line, violating the dress code, littering. 1980. Top seven reported problems. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, assault. 29 years later, 2009. Which list do you think our schools more closely resemble in their reports? Has it gotten better in the last 29 years? No. There's a problem. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the honest keeps them on track. The deviousness of crooks brings them to ruin. Did you have to teach your kids how to be dishonest? It came naturally. Did you do that? No. Did you just lie to me? No. I'm going to beat your backside with big blue. Did you just lie to me? No. God has given most parents the ability to see through their kids when they're lying. And so, you know, I've, just, I've caught my kids through the years in lies. And then I say, hmm, five minutes ago you said this. Now you said this. And they go, I meant, yeah, you meant you're about to get your rear busted. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a two swats. Oh, don't give me swats. Don't lie. You've got to train your children to have integrity. And it happens through discipline. And here's what I want you to understand about discipline. Discipline and punishment have different goals in mind. Punishment is what our criminal justice system... You know, it used to be called the Texas Department of Corrections. That's kind of a misnomer. They changed it to Texas Criminal justice, Department of Criminal Justice. Because here's the deal. Punishment has to do with what you did in the past, and you are punished, and I am all for it. You commit the crime, you do the time. Yes, I'm all for that. But if you notice the recidivism rate, that's the people who go back into prison... What is it? It's above 80%, isn't it? So, evidently, prison doesn't wake most people up. Now, i got to say, we've had some folks in our church go through prison and God has uh, uh, wakened them from their sleep, their slumber, and they're living the straight and narrow, but they're the exception to the rule. Punishment doesn't generally change behavior for the future. Discipline, on the other hand is not so concerned about what happened in the past. Discipline is concerned about what is going to happen in the future. So I say to my kids, you messed up, I love you, I'm going to help you remember next time not to make that same choice. And then I give them one or two swats. The Bible says if you spoil the rod or Big Blue, you spoil the child, Big Blue, I brought Big Blue a couple of weeks ago. Some of you weren't here that day. But we don't, we don't spank our children excessively. But if they commit the crime, they get to meet Big Blue. Discipline is all about future behavior. And the Bible says that God disciplines His children. In fact, if you're not being disciplined, if you're living like hell and you're not being disciplined, that might be an indication that you are not a child of God. The Bible says He disciplines His children like a loving father. And that's what God wants us to do. Godly discipline of a child is more interested in the future than in the past. Number four, a real man follows the king. I'm just going to touch on that today because next week we're going to dig into that. I don't know if you've seen the movie To Kill a Mockingbird or read the book. Anybody seen that and read it? Gregory Peck in the movie plays um, the attorney in a small southern town, Atticus Finch. Story's about race and prejudice, but it's also about the integrity of a father. And throughout the movie, you can see Mr. Finch's integrity usually through the eyes of his children, especially Scout, his daughter. A black man, Tom Robinson, is wrongly accused of raping a white woman. Atticus agrees to defend this man, which was not a very popular decision back in the South in those days. He's hounded by the bigoted white community. How can you, how can you do this? A white mob descends upon the jail and they're going to take matters into their own hands and they're going to kill Tom. Atticus, white man, steps in between. He says, no, you will not do this. People hate him. People say all kinds of things, do all kinds of things to try to get revenge on him. But Tom, uh, Atticus saves Tom's lives, life from the vigilantes. At the very end of the movie, Tom is convicted of a crime he did not commit. Atticus has poured his life into this and he's given a compelling argument, but the, the jury doesn't buy it. And they commit an innocent man to jail. Atticus stands up dejectedly and starts walking out the courthouse. In those days, the black folks could not sit on the floor. So they're in the balcony. And there's all the black folks there. And the Reverend Sykes is there as well. And that's where um, Atticus's children are. And the coolest thing to me is as, as Atticus begins walking down the courtroom the folks in the balcony, the black folks stand in his honor. Scout, his daughter, is still sitting there and the Reverend Sykes leans over and says uh, Miss Jean Louise, you need to stand up because your father's passing by. They honored him because he was a man of integrity. So dads, I want to know What do your kids say when you pass by? Do they even know you? Are your children inspired by your character? Do your sons cry out, I want to be like Dad? Do your daughters look for people like you? They're going to, and that should scare you. The really cool thing about following our King is that He knows we're mess-ups and so He provides what we need. He makes up the difference between the man I want to be and the man I am. And when I follow Him, He makes up the difference in the lives of my children. He pours value in the lives of my children. What do you want your children to say about you when you die? Maybe today's the day that you're going to say, God, I want to pattern my life after Jesus Christ. I want to live pure, I want to lead with truth, I want to right wrong, and I want to follow the King. Moms, do you long for a husband like Jesus Christ? Tell God, not anybody else. You don't need to be talking about how sorry your husband is. Your kids hear it. Talk to God about that. Single moms, pray that God will raise up some men to pour value into the lives of your children. We try to do that here at the church. We recognize the value of single moms and try to partner with you. Grandparents, it's never too late for you to influence your grandkids. Ask God to help you to prepare your descendants to make a difference for all eternity.